Hey y'all, before we get started, I just have to give a couple quick updates on some stories we discuss here in the pod. First, when we get into his insider trading scandal, which is a doozy, uh, you should know that the Daily Beast has since reported that Senator Purdue bought stock in a company that made submarine parts right after being put in charge of a Senate subcommittee overseeing the Navy. I've included in the source notes, but it's basically all the same points we made when talking about DuPont, so just adding another one to the pile right there. Second, an FBI investigation into all that insider trading has now revealed that Purdue did in fact personally direct his own stock trades. I know you're shocked to hear there was fired next to all that smoke that we're going to talk about later in this episode. Uh, but we talk about it all as allegedly in this podcast because there hadn't been proof at the time of the recording. Those Goldman Sachs records are pretty damning, as you can see for yourself in the show notes. Now, on with the show. What's mandering my jerrys? I'm sorry, I'm trying to do a Robert Evans thing, and I, I don't know if it worked. Walter, did it work? Did it work? Well, you are not Robert Evans, but I don't think anyone on the planet is Robert Evans, so I will give you I will give you 7.9 leftists out of 11. You know, I'll take that, honestly. Uh, but yeah, this is not, I'm not Robert Evans, I'm Chase Wasserner, and this is not Behind the Bastards, but it sure as hell is my best attempt to do something along the lines. Uh, I've been looking at the Georgia election, uh, which is near dear to my heart because I grew up in that state, uh, and I have parents that still live there and vote there and are conflicted because they voted Republican their entire lives. And so I've decided to put together 21 pages on why they shouldn't do that. I think the final title is going to be David Perdue is bad and should feel bad. I think that's where I'm at having written this. I want to see if you agree at the end. Walter Fedchuk, my co-host here, uh, who I should probably introduce at some point. I, I don't know if Dave Perdue's felt anything in his life. Like his <laughs> his photo, like the photos that I've just seen of him just looks like he is incapable of performing any kind of emotion, uh, much like the former vice president of the United States, Mike Pence. They're kind of from the same school of just no emotion, um, which, you know, kind of makes sense. There, there's a robotic feel there. And, you know, I, I guess we should just jump in uh, as to who we're, who this guy is and why you shouldn't vote for him. That seems fun. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> David Perdue was born on December 10th, 1949 in Macon, Georgia. Perdue was the child of two school teachers, and his father, David Perdue Sr., was elected superintendent of schools for Houston County, Georgia. The Atlanta Constitution reported in 1964 that Perdue's father led the country through a voluntary racial desegregation process. He was a key part of that in his area. Uh, it was at that time, according to an interview uh, that... Purdue had uh, in 2018 with Business Insider that his father gave him a crucial bit of advice that he says has shaped his entire career in both business and politics. Take care of the job you got and everything else will take care of itself. Uh, and if there's one thing he's done best, it's taking care of himself and hoping that the rest will just fall into place. And, and, and not taking care of other jobs, which we'll find out later. That, that's not the... No, no. It's about this job in this moment. Forget all those other things. And except don't, because that's what we're talking about. Please don't forget those other things, for the love of God. Uh, Purdue was raised in Warner Robins, Georgia. Uh, graduated from Northside High School in 1968. Fun fact, that is the school that my high school uh, played in the uh, second round of the playoffs for football, I believe, 
uh, in 2009. I don't know why I remember that, but it is true. Um, he left Warner Robins to start school at the United States Air Force Academy on June 23rd after receiving an appointment from Congressman Jack Brinkley of Georgia. But he didn't finish there. Uh, it doesn't really explain why. There's no sign that anything nefarious happened of any kind, so um, I don't want to look into it too much. But it is weird that he sought the appointment and then graduated from Georgia Tech uh, on time. So I, I don't know exactly what happened there. But he went on to earn a bachelor's in industrial engineering and a master's degree in operations research. So far, so good. Um, but he's always prided himself on his skill as a businessman. He cites his work at CEO of Reebok and Dollar General often. He's quite proud of it. Uh, that work has helped him become one of the wealthiest people in Congress, with an estimated net worth of somewhere between 10 and $50 million, depending on who you ask. But in recent years, he's defined himself more by his connection to President Donald Trump. On his official bio page, Purdue calls himself an early supporter and one of Trump's closest allies in the Senate. He's got a 94.9% Trump score, a stat which 538 uses to measure how often a member votes in line with Trump's position during his time in office, uh, which makes him the 10th overall and 7th among active members. So that's what we're doing today. Doesn't that sound fun? So fun? he's like two-thirds of a Ted Cruz, or is that like three-quarters of a Lindsey Graham? I honestly, I think he was Donald Trump just on a smaller scale two years before it happened. And let, I will make the case, I promise. Uh, let's step back to 1998. Purdue has built a career for himself as a management consultant, including successful stints at Kurt Salmon Associates, Sara Lee Corporation, and Hacker Clothing. In 1998, he joins Reebok as a senior vice president and quickly rises through the ranks as CEO. As Business Insider noted, Purdue struck gold when he spearheaded a shoe contract with the National Football League that fellow executives lauded as revolutionary at the time. The AGC also reported that the CEO's legacy of the shoe brand was marked with his penchant for signing on top athletes and musicians to hawk Reebok sneakers. So that's kind of, he, he's doing that before everybody else. The idea of like sports and celebrity endorsements. He takes Reebok from the brink and uses that to bring them uh, to where they are now. But, so that's cool. But much like Reebok, he did it after Nike. He, that's true. But this, I mean, this still, at the time, basically everybody says, yes, this was a smart thing he did, and he did it well. Um, so I do want to give him credit for that, because I'm going to give him blame for a lot of other things, and we're here to be fair and balanced, TMCR. Uh, this was considered revolutionary at the time, and helped him establish a reputation as a turnaround specialist. But these skills were put to the test in 2002, when he took over a North Carolina textile firm known as Pillow Techs. Do you know anything about Pillow Techs, Walter? So I will say I did a brief bit of research, which basically came across glossing over a Wikipedia page about him. Um, and I think they make pillows. I think they, they were like the my pillow guy before he was. They did. They were a textile manufacturer, and they were just emerging from bankruptcy protection. But Purdue was ready to take on the challenge. He was going to turn things around. Until he didn't. Instead, he left. Uh, just one year later for Greener Pastures, and Pillowtex folded soon after July 2003. So within a year, everything has collapsed. And Purdue will tell you that the company misled him when explaining the depths of its problem. As the Charlotte Observer noticed, Pillowtex was on the hook for a woefully underfunded pension program that required tens of millions of dollars the company just flat out did not have. So it's safe to say that Purdue had his work cut out for him when trying to raise funds to turn the company around. 
Unfortunately for Pillowtech's employees, people at the time indicate he didn't try particularly hard to do so. Instead of being on the front lines, Purdue spent most of his time away from the company that was desperately in need for help. It was terrible for morale. We felt he'd given up on us, an internal auditor told The Observer for its series. Others called him Oz because behind his back, as a nod to the seldom-seen wizard. So, everything's going to shit and he's just not there. So that's two things he's given up on so far. Yeah. So far, I mean, you know, Reebok, he's like, ah, I gotta try it again, gotta prove myself, and then just, yeah, it gets hard and he basically bails. Um... But one particularly vocal critic was Harris Rayner, a Southeast Regional Director of the Union that represented three-quarters of the company's 8,000 workers. But speaking to the AJC, Rayner described Purdue as lacking vision and called the company fairly directionless under his leadership. The big thing is, here's a man who is selling himself to voters on his record as a businessman. He may have had success, but he doesn't even mention pillow text, Rayner said. It's like a pitcher only talking about the games he won. He fiddled while Rome burned. He did not lead. So not Foreshadowing. Great. <laughs> it, it, doesn't, it doesn't sound good. Um, I, you know, I, I empathize coming into a project in which things seem hard, but when your whole thing is how you turn around projects that are struggling, you don't get to just not show up and then brag about how good you are at doing the thing. That just seems not but right. But, like, isn't that... Isn't that, like, an incomplete, then? Like, in college, if you don't show up to enough classes, they don't actually grade you. They just give you an incomplete, and, like, you have to take the class again, but I, it's not Yeah, a you fail the class. That's a fail. Well, that we we, we mean, give Fs to that. I mean, I understand, like, on the record, I suppose. But here's the thing, Walter. You can't just do that. Because, as the Observer noted, Politex closure wiped out 7,650 jobs nationwide, including more than 4,000 in Cabarrus and Rowan counties, the biggest one-day loss of the history of the state and the textile industry at the time. What Purdue did do is cash out as soon as he found the chance. Tax records recorded, reviewed by the AJC show that Purdue was paid $1.7 million during his nine months with the company, including a $1.3 million payout on the way out. Meanwhile, the workers who had made 11 to $12 an hour in a textile job, many of whom lacked the skills to find another similarly paying job, were left with an empty pension fund. So that's neat. Well, I guess it makes sense why he then ran for Senate in Georgia and not North Carolina. Yeah, no, North Carolina was not a fan. And the North Carolina uh, governor has made several points about how Georgia is falling behind them on things like COVID. Um, and I don't think they've let it go. Um, they did actually note the Charlotte Observer, like, if it had happened in Georgia, might have made a difference. Um, and again, I do just want to stress for the sake of fairness, uh, PolitiFact has reported uh, as a kind of fact check, the company's closure was not his fault. But he cashed in hard without providing any meaningful solutions. It's, the, it's like the Sailor Moon meme. It's like, but you didn't do anything. Like, you showed up, somehow left with $1.7 million dollars. And the company just went bankrupt and lost all those jobs. So, not not great. Yeah, I, I yeah, I mean, that's just like <laughs> the Sailor Moon meme. It pretty, so, means like makes a lot of sense. Honestly, so is it better or worse that at the same time he's doing this, he's branding himself as someone who loves to do that undercover boss thing, where they like act oh. like they're one of the normal employees to learn more about what's going on. Oh. I, I feel like if you know 
these people and still do the thing? I feel like that's worse. I feel that's like, like that's the, worse. That sounds like the worst episode of Undercover Boss ever. Like, <laughs> normally, normally, like, two people get something out of it, like a promotion or, like, a check to buy a car, and instead he just laid a bunch of people off. Yeah, he, yeah. So, um, you're going to be surprised to hear this, Walter, but Purdue's biography makes no reference to Pillow Text, but he does mention Dollar General. Once again, his Wall Street reputation as a turnaround specialist was put to the test, and this time, he managed to mostly pull it out. Before he joined, the company had just paid $162 million to shareholders in lawsuits, after overstating its profits by $100 million. After overhauling their logistics network and marketing strategy, Purdue helped the company double its stock price and opened 2,600 new stores under his tenure. Uh, but he had learned an important lesson from Pillotex. How to cash out at the right moment. Because as the AJC reported, Purdue helped engineer a leveraged buyout by KKR, a private equity giant. And tax records show that Purdue took in $42 million from Dollar General in 2007 and 2008 after that deal. He even had to pay one of those special golden parachute taxes in 2008 on the money that he was paid when he left the co company. However, sales not without its controversy, because Dollar General would have to pay out $42 million in 2009 to settle lawsuits alleging that Purdue and other top executives had lied to stockholders about the worth of the share at the time, giving them $22 when it should have been much more. When questioned about it, Purdue's campaign noted that 99% of stockholders okayed the deal. I mean, what's the problem, Walter? You agreed to the terms I lied about. So well, we're good, right? Well, like much like golden parachutes, you know, gravity and, and facts are just kind of there for rich people to do whatever they want with. It, well, it's it's the sucker thing, right? It's it's the Trump philosophy that everyone in a business deal, there always has to be one sucker in the transaction. And so there's no way you could just take the amount, like you, you can't possibly just let investors cash in and just make some of the money, man. You gotta get it all. You gotta get... And, just, and I'm sure that, that, that fine that they paid out was Dollar General paying it out and not, <laughs> not a cent of David Perdue's blood money, right? A absolutely, that is what happened. Um, and here's the thing. Uh, from there, Perdue became a senior consultant for an Indian chemical company known as Gujarat Heavy Chemicals Limited. Uh, I apologize profusely if I have mispronounced that. Uh, now, this may seem weird for a guy who spent most of his political career hammering on his business's success stateside, but... Actually, most of the businesses he'd done, whether it was his position as senior vice president of Asian operations at Sara Lee, or nearly all of Reebok's production, had been done in Asia. Uh, his senior consultant position ended in 2009, and that very same year, Gujarat Heavy Chemicals Limited was charged with fraud by the Security and Exchange Board of India. Sebi's claimed top mad. SEBI claimed its top management gave false data on promoter holding. According to the Hindustan Times article at the time, SEBI found a stark variance in disclosures of promoters holding across four quarters in 2008. In March 2009, the company reported a, uh, a promoter holding 18.2% from 38.3% in December 2008, but the company just didn't report it as is required by the regulator. So that's fun. So this seems like a lot of manipulating stock pricing. Yes, it seems to keep happening that way. And it's funny how that happens. Um, and it's funny because March 2009 
is when he left the company. Now, there's no way of proving that. Uh, allegations were never specified as to who that was. But it is very convenient timing, if nothing else. That all tracks really funnily, uh, especially because he'd just done that at Dollar General. Like, right? They just, you just, you can't, you're not supposed to do the same con twice, buddy. That's the rules. You have to mix it up a little bit, right? I mean, we'll have to ask Elon Musk that question in, like, what, three years? I I suppose so. Um, <laughs> as his journey with GHCL came to a close, a unique opportunity emerged for David Perdue, courtesy of his cousin, Sonny. Now, we're not going to get into all the ways he sucks, but I would like to tell you about the time he made himself $100,000 in the last three minutes of a, of a tax break on land purchases by making it retroactive specifically to 2004 when everyone was tired and no one noticed. That, that's, that's a fun little goof you can pull. It's just like, hey, let me make it retroactive to specifically the day that I did it. I mean, yeah, like numbers are just, you know, points of data on a spreadsheet and you can do whatever you want with them, especially with money. I mean, some people would argue that money itself is made up and that we just, yeah, we just made it all up. And Now that's uh, dangerous to think that. It's I, you know, um, I always hoped I would grow up to be someone dangerous because I was such a mama's boy <laughs> in every other fucking way. I'm glad I finally found my edge. It took took 27 years, 28 years. God damn, I hate time. Anyway. <laughs> Just so you know, Chase will now, after this podcast, have to put a quarter into the swear jar. Oh my goodness. Look, I'm. by the way, I'm going to keep calling him Sonny to make it easy. Not to be disrespectful to the former Georgia governor, Purdue. Uh, that's what everything else I'm going to say about him is for. Uh, but it just makes things easier. Uh, the it's better to treat it like a mob movie, absolutely. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that, but I don't regret it. Uh, the biggest thing you need to know about uh, Sonny Perdue is that he served in the Georgia State Senate from 1991 to 2002, before serving as the state governor from 2003 to 2010. But as he eyed the end of his second and final term as governor, Sonny started looking for his next opportunity to cash in big. Sonny's choice was obvious, the Georgia Port Authority. The Port Authority Board sets policies and oversees management of over $67 billion in revenue statewide, managing all of the cargo that comes into or out of Georgia ports, most notably in Savannah. Uh, in 2010, Sonny Badu was caught meeting with the GPA three times in 2009, during which point he, quote, used the expertise of state employees at the GPA to boost his own businesses. According to an email sent by GPA sales manager Chip Hawkins, Purdue was laying the groundwork so that when the governor leaves office, they will be in a position to start up an operation. GPA spokesperson Robert Morris told the newspaper that Purdue and company officials were treated just as any other company would have been. We are very attentive to all of our customers. <laughs> I'm sure they were very attentive to the former governor. Yeah! I, I am sure that they paid the exact same amount of attention to the former governor as Joe Schmo from down the street. I'm sure they equally got the same amount. Also, love that you're doing that on government time, Sonny. Uh, keep on keeping on. Um, one of his last acts as Georgia governor, Sonny did what all good sycophants do. He named his cousin to the board of the Georgia Ports Authority. With this post, Sonny put David Perdue in a position to follow in his footsteps with a future in government. After all, the AJC notes that the GPA is seen as the who's who of Georgia business owners and politicians alike, making it a perfect place to network, 
For example, the chairman Walt David Perdue served on the board was Alex Pointevent, former head of the state uh, Republican Party, who went on to manage the 2002, uh, 2012 GOP National Convention. Now, Noel, this would be sketchy on its own, Sonny placing his cousin on the board of the Port Authority right after having a bunch of meetings with the Port Authority on how he should conduct business when he leaves. But this immediately grew more complicated when the Purdue cousins came together to start Purdue Partners Limited in 2011, an Atlanta-based trading company focused on exporting U.S. goods and services. Uh, and in December 2012, uh, they expanded to acquire Benton Express, a family-owned company uh, that had basically begun uh, in the 1930s by delivering movie reels to cinemas, and had expanded uh, into a massive truck fleet thanks to the infusion of glass from Purdue Partners. Now has 300 trucks and 20 terminals scattered across the north southeast. So that seems f- good. Right? Listen, I'm I'm just seeing some good old family like like a nice strong family connection here he got his poor cousin who was out of work a job then they decided to go into business together and then they got this other family involved and it it just seems like family 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 is really important to the purdue cousins i mean he was having such a rough time two businesses he had worked with were getting accused of fraud it was such what a shame right like that's got a way on i mean he only had like what 45 million dollars or something like that's not nearly enough hey somewhere between 10 and 50 million which is just amazing that that can be a range that someone could have that number almost doesn't mean anything at that point but here we are we're doing the best with the info we have all of which will be in the show notes by the way i have way too many articles and you could read them all too if you want to check my work and tell me why i'm wrong now senator purdue didn't make much note of this time at the georgia ports authority when running for office but he had provided a sizable chunk of the startup's capital from his own pockets his senate financial disclosure statement shows that he sunk between three hundred thousand and seven hundred fifty thousand dollars of equity in his, the company so it's safe to say he had a vested interest in its success and in may 2014 the ajc found the following quote Records show that for the three-plus years he served in the Ports Board, the businessman failed to file a required affidavit with the State Ethics Commission, swearing he had taken no action on the board that would impact his private financial or business interests. Purdue filed the paperwork last week after the HEC inquired about it. His campaign called the failure to do so an oversight and filed the forms later that month. Whoopsies. My bad. Just, you know. I mean, I lose paperwork all the time, too. Yeah, I too forget basic conflict of interest policies at a government position. I mean, how often does it come up, right? I mean, I'm definitely not the type of person that puts all of my bills and important dates into three different calendars on my phone or anything like that. Like, that would just be ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I understand he's 70 years old, and so maybe spreadsheets are not his favorite thing in the world, but I do feel like perhaps someone should have had some amount of docu- by By 2014, someone could have figured that out, I believe. Um, but look, at the time, the AJC wasn't able to find any records that Purdue Partners had worked through the Georgia Ports Authority. That's good. However, just two months later, the paper made a breakthrough. Quote, records obtained by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution through an open records request paint an even more complicated portrait, showing that a trucking company purchased by both Purdue's hauled cargo at the port while David was on the board making important decisions about the port's operations. What? Whoops! My bad! 
I, man, I'm shocked. It's 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 the Casablanca scene. It's like I'm shocked that there's gambling here. I'm shocked that the guy whose dad appointed him to the port, whose cousin appointed him to the Ports Authority after asking about all these business things, then made business decisions while on the board of the Ports Authority. How can anyone have seen that coming? You know? Yeah. <sighs> Uh, I mean, it's my, listen, he probably gave the, the Georgia Port Authority, like, a deal. It's like, hey, it's my trucking company. Like, I'll give you guys, like, 150%. Well, here's the thing, though. He actually, they have a better, this is, this is their argument. The Purdue campaign claims that their contact was above board throughout this time, as contracts for trucking work were not with the port, but with the companies and shippers moving the goods. They said that it was providing logistical support and therefore should not be seen as an importer or an exporter. So that's fine. You're not... Are, are you really in the shipping industry if all you're doing is taking things to and from places for other companies? That's different, right? Nah, that's just courier work. That's basically freelance. <laughs> like, that's covered underneath, what was it, Prop 22 in California? Like, that's just... Oh. That's 1099 work. Man, dude, it's too <laughs> soon. Too soon for the Prop 22 <laughs> Oh, God. Well, please, everyone else's state, uh, don't fall for it. It's real bad. Um, but here's the thing. While Purdue was on the board, he took votes on tens of millions of dollars worth of infrastructure improvements designed to help streamline and improve transportation at the busy gateway. They included a $1.5 million payout to pave one terminal and $77 million for ship-to-shore cranes that his company definitely used. As William Perry, then head of the nonprofit advocacy group Common Sense, Common Cause Georgia put it, quote, In general, it's something I would call a conflict of interest. His business is benefiting from votes he takes on the board. So, government career off to a great start. I think. I mean, it depends who you're asking. If you're asking, like, the normal citizenry of your of uh georgia like eh, maybe a little corrupt but if you're asking his bank account you go buddy you keep doing you dave you're doing great we'll see this is the best part because if it makes you feel better the story does have a somewhat happy ending none of this meddling behind the scenes actually did them any good according to the ajc uh, a business venture by the politically powerful cousins this being purdue partners ended badly in 2015 leaving behind millions of dollars in debts and thousands of dollars in delinquent taxes uh, Purdue spokesman claims uh, that he was just a passive investor in Purdue Partners and pointed to David Purdue severing all business ties by the time he joined the Senate, which is, again, 2015 he'd gotten there. Uh, however, that probably didn't mean much to the 577 unsecured creditors who were left holding the bag, many of whom represented much smaller businesses with much less available capital than the two Purdue cousins had. Um, when asked about this, David Purdue likes to respond, I've taken risks. They haven't all been five-star successes. No <laughs> shit. <laughs> That's burying the lead. You don't say, David. I can't believe that. What gave I you that how, idea? I love how they try to argue away like, oh, he wasn't that involved in a company that has his name on it. He's a co-founder with his cousin. <laughs> I just, oh my no, God. It's brilliant. just right. It's just right there. But see, here's the thing. Having spent the last few years networking among Republican elites, David Perdue decided he had greater aspirations. He was going to run for public office. But instead of banking on his connection with Sonny or touting his amazing experience at the Port Authority, Perdue downplayed those factors to paint himself as the ultimate outsider. 
You ready to you ready to do some Trump? We're gonna do oh, a Trump. Oh God, here it comes. So from a 2014 profile of the Atlantic, quote. Purdue's sudden popularity confounds the running tally in Washington, where scorekeepers are trying to mark down every GOP primary as a win for either the Tea Party or the Republican establishment. Purdue's pedigreed profile, as well as some conciliatory rhetoric on budget issues, would seem to put him in the latter category. But he has styled himself as an antagonist of all things Washington, and labeled his opponents as career politicians. In a debate over the weekend, Purdue pledged not to support Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell to lead the Republican caucus. Do you remember that, Walter, when Purdue fought back and took down Mitch McConnell? I'm going to be really honest. I didn't know who Dave Purdue was until that video of uh, John Ossa, like, eviscerating him. (laughs) Yeah, well, um, I got. Uh, don't worry, it didn't happen. That was not what he did <laughs> when he got into power. He did not uh, decide not to support Mitch McConnell, the guy whose ironclad support has slowed down the Congress for the last <laughs> eight years. That didn't happen. Um, but uh, Purdue was considered a major underdog at first, as he was going up against heavyweights for, against, within the Republican Party. However, he quickly won hearts and minds with an ad campaign that received national attention. In it, he paints all of his opponents as literal babies, uh, crying and confused. Um, his, the ad's final line was a searing indictment of his opponents. I'm running against four politicians with 63 years in, ex- in office between them, Purdue said. If they were going to make a difference, they would have done so by now. And I'm just going to send you, Walter, this is the picture. This is oh what it looks boy. like. Oh, boy. This is from wanna, his ad. Do I want to see this? What, captured the nation. <laughs> I swear to God, the Atlantic wrote an article. It's like the best ad of the 2014. Mid- like, how bad are ads, man? Like, come on. Wow. That is, which is really ironic because, like, he's the one with no experience. So he's, like, the baby politician out of that group. It's just weird. It's just, yeah, it's, there are some metaphors being crossed there. But here's the thing. Uh, it worked. People loved it. Um, and, much like Trump would two years later, Purdue found a lot of success with the electorate by accentuating his status as a businessman first and foremost. Despite pissing off longtime Republican allies such as the U.S. Chamber of Commerce with his attack ads, which they claim was retaliation for turning down his request for endorsement several times, he quickly rose through the primaries and ended up earning the Republican nomination. And when discussing his qualifications against Dem challenger Michelle Nunn, his line of argument could not be more clear. Quote, She's an outsider. I'm an outsider. I believe my background of 40 years in business around the world trumps her community organizer background. We've tried that already, guys. You know, nice person, but this is not the right time. Oh. That's subtle. That's, it's, yeah, man. You know, what I appreciate, I will say this for Purdue, uh, for all the things I'm going to say about him, uh, he's not, yeah, he's not shy. Uh, He has never backed down. Um, he has maintained his role as Trump's biggest ally during some crazy shit that we will get into. Well, um, not never. Pretty much never. It's pretty much he's he he does. Um, I mean, he I guess within he does what he says he's going to do. Anything that he doesn't want to do, he will ignore like the coward that he is. But the mm. things that he says he's going to do, he's very proud of. Um, it's just that those things are trash, which is the problem. Mm. Okay, fair. <laughs> and 
here's the thing. As The Atlantic noted, Purdue was able to pull this off while still being the embodiment of the elitist stereotype he was attacking. He lives in a mansion on a wealthy beach resort of Sea Island and caused a stir when he demeaned one of his Republican opponents when he said, quote, there's a high school graduate in this race, okay? Um, that didn't go over well at first, but in the long run, uh, he had a lot of help with his election campaign from two mysterious Ohio nonprofits, the Government Integrity Fund and Jobs in Progress. Uh, have you heard of either of these before? I haven't, but I feel like I already kind of know where this is going. You probably do. Uh, both groups hid its donors and invested over $500,000 combined in ads that harshly attacked Purdue's opponents despite having no obvious investment in the race. On its own, this would just be a weird outlier, a blip for most PACs. But at the same time, uh, the same pattern was being found in uh, Chicago billionaire Bruce Rauner's uh, gub gubernatorial campaign. Both candidates were political outsiders who prided themselves on their business connections. But they both also had one other thing in common. They both worked with longtime GOP political consultant Nick Ayers. And as Open Secrets, a Center for Responsive Politics noted, quote, Ayers, it turned out, worked for the very same groups that funded the attacks against Rauner and Purdue's opponents. And in fact, Purdue's campaign had steered more than $2.9 million in ad buys through Ayers' firm Target Enterprises Incorporated. Yep, that, uh, yep, that sounds about right. That no. sounds, yeah, oh. it's a tale as old as time. Oh. But, you know, yeah, here's the thing. Under the 2010 uh, Citizens United Supreme Court decision, it's not illegal for an outside group, a super PAC or a corporation, to fund attacks on candidates, but they may not plot strategy with the campaigns that benefit from their work. However, proving Ayer's work with the campaigns directly and his work with the nonprofits connected is a lot harder than you'd think that would sound. Uh, quote, activity between a campaign and an outside group that looks coordinated to the average person may not be, in a legal sense, the hurdles of proof are quite high, said Rick Hasen, a campaign finance expert and professor at the University of California at Irvine's Law School. The legal definition of coordination is extensive and complicated, involving a multi-pronged test with multiple subparts. According to several legal experts consulted by Open Secrets blog, there has not been a successful coordination case proven at the federal level since Citizens United. See, so this all sounds very familiar to me because I am an avid basketball fan and I know about legal tampering. Yeah, it's just... Man, Citizens United sucks so hard, and I know that it's like, of all the things we talk about, it's not the flashy one, but when we just agreed that corporations could just throw in money however they wanted into this stuff, I feel like perhaps a bad move. Um, and unfortunately, it's hard to get a clear look at just how much corruption was in play here. As Open Secrets notes, Job and Fogress Plund, which uh, bankrolled the campaign that benefited Rauner, is a 501c4 group that doesn't have to publicly identify its donors. Even its 990 reports to the IRS, which contain such information as top contractors' names, are due 11 months after the end of the fiscal year, well after any election-related spending has occurred. Super PACs like Citizens for a Working America that attacked Kingston in the Georgia Senate race must, by law, reveal their donors. When those donors are C4 dark money groups like those who gave more than $2 million to the anti-Kingston Super PAC, the disclosure requirement is practically meaningless. Yay! Yay, U.S. government! We did it! We did a democracy! We did it! It's working as intended. Everything is fine. We don't... 
I don't see the problem. It's going what, great. What kind of like what kind of pack would exi- would have existed back in like the first presidential election? Oh my like, god! Like what kind of what would the pack have been named against George Washington? Well, I mean, it would be the Cherry Tree Pact, right? It would be they would say that the Cherry Tree wanted revenge. It was an anti. It was an environmentalist group that really wanted to go after Washington for the way that he used natural resources during the Revolutionary War. Obviously. <laughs> I like it. I'm not even going to try and think of one. That was brilliant. <laughs> I just thought of the most bad faith attack I could come up with on George Washington. And it turns out you can play this game at home, folks. You really can't. Um, it's 2014. Purdue secured his position as U.S. Senator with a convincing 52.9% of the vote. His platform was clear. Reduce the deficit and remove the gridlock that had slowed Congress to a crawl in the years before his election. Uh, this remained his biggest talking point for the first two years as seen in an interview with the Albany Herald in 2016. Gridlock is what is so dangerous in Washington right now. We chose to do this federal budgeting bill without staff and without media in the room. Here, we've ended up with a politically neutral platform that, honestly, I think both sides will look at, even the most conservative people, and say, well, I don't see where you're giving up anything here. You're giving an opportunity for both sides to have an argument, and at the end of the day, you've got to have a vote. The problem is, today that we don't get that vote. Sure is a problem, isn't it, Walter? What a shame that the Senate can't get the votes that they want. That's like that's really, really weird that he would be like, I'm, I'm anti-gridlock, anti-gridlock, and then like be a member of the most gridlocked Senate in well, see, probably U.S. history. That's the problem, Walter, because he said this in 2016 while the Republicans had the Senate and had no difficulties bringing things to a vote. Indeed, as Purdue was complaining about gridlock in that interview, he was bragging about withholding his consent on any nominee to the Supreme Court submitted by President Obama. It's something he mentioned at least 10 different times during this final year of Obama's presidency. And I'm sure he had that same exact thought, like, you know, less than three months ago, right? Yeah, no. um, I'll give you one guess how he felt about Amy Coby Barrett's nomination. Um, Yeah, yep, it went exactly... (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. Are you saying he voted in favor of her? He was honored. Uh, I could give you the exact quote. It was a grand honor for him, uh, for for such a family woman. The first woman to have school-aged kids while on the Supreme Court, Walter. Is there any greater achievement? Finally, moms with school kids getting the Supreme Court representation that they deserve after all this time. What a... Just when we needed a Karen on the Supreme Court. Yeah, that's... When I think about oppression in modern American society... I think about white moms with enough money to raise a family of several kids in a nice house. Those are the people that are really struggling, I think. So it, so is she like a Nissan, like, Odyssey kind of mom, or does she drive one of the SUVs? <laughs> Honestly, yes. Like, this, <laughs> I, can see, I can see those being the two cars that the family share. Uh, but look, <laughs> this is, that, that episode is not coming if I have any sanity remaining in me. I will decide to stop after the Georgia special elections. But, you know, we'll see. I've done dumber things before. (laughs) However, Purdue began to adjust his tactics during the rise of Donald Trump in the Republican primaries. Like Purdue, Trump was an outsider relying on his business expertise and a reputation as a dealmaker that can get things done. Combined with the pair's mutual love of golf, it was a match made in heaven. 
And the connection goes back farther than many might realize. As the AJC noted, quote, in 2014, the Sea Island resident had just emerged win the winner following an ugly GOP primary runoff to capture Saxby Chambliss's former U.S. Senate seat. And Trump had summoned Purdue to Trump Tower to discuss his journey from the boardroom to the ballot. Little did Purdue know at the time that Trump was mulling a run for president. Yeah, I'm sure he didn't. I'm sure Trump was super subtle, you know? Because, like, if there's one thing Trump's known for, it's subtlety when talking about wanting power. I mean, that and, like, steamy nights in Russian hotels. <laughs> oh, God. Allegedly, allegedly, we're not, allegedly. Getting sued for, well, we're not getting sued for slander. That's the one that's spoken. That's the one that is not appropriate here because we didn't do it. Uh, this meeting proved fruitful for Trump as several key Purdue allies ended up on his campaign, including Nick Ayers, the guy behind those Super City packs who later became Pence's chief of staff because of no course way. he did. Of course no he way. did. And look, Purdue isn't just an advocate of Trump. He's a full believer and one of the strongest voices within the party supporting him. Purdue once called Trump, quote, a person of destiny, coming in at an important time where we need to break some eggs in Washington. He's also compared Trump to UK World War II era Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Oh, no. Saying Trump, saying he was, quote, nobody's choir boy at the time, but he was a man of destiny who pulled the country together and survived one of the greatest debacles in their history. He doesn't know what the traditions are or the rules or anything else. He's just trying to get results. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, God. Man. God, Churchill wasn't an outsider. No, and he absolutely did respect traditions like the crowd. I watched that show. I know better than this. But, uh, look, if that comment got a response that I have to share in full from Georgia State Senator Nan Orrock. Quote, Churchill's legendary leadership helped defeat the Nazis in World War II, while Trump hasn't passed a single bill in nine months as president. It's like comparing Secretariat with Eeyore. One's a winner and the other's a loser. Sad. Oh I, it's wow. just, it's so good. It's so oh good. Also, remember Eeyore. what, remember when you could end tweets with sad exclamation point and it was funny? Like that was just a thing we did on Twitter for like not, 12 months there. Ah, 2017. 20 it's years so far ago. away. I know. It really, it really is. Sad. Um, also, if it makes you feel better, Trump apparently hated the Churchill comparison. He considered it an insult. So that's neat. Uh, Donald what, Trump considered it an insult. Yeah, Donald Trump thought the Churchill comparison was an insult. Um, <laughs> did okay. not like I mean, look, he has Mein Kampf on his desk, not Winston Churchill stuff, man. Wrong side. This is fair. Come on. This is fair. <laughs> this Very fair. <laughs> I'm just saying. Allegedly. Of the, of the, of, no, we know that he had that book. It's just, yeah, it's fun, man. Anyway, uh, as Trump continued to build momentum throughout 2016, Purdue's rhetoric also shifted to match the more aggressive tone. At the 2016 session of the Faith and Freedom Coalition's annual policy conference, Purdue led with the following joke. Quote, I think we're called to pray for our country, our leaders, and yes, even our president. I think we should pray for Barack Obama. We need to be very specific. We should pray like Psalm 109.8 uh, says, let his days be few and let another take his office. Now, if you got a chuckle out of that or could at least see a version of this joke attacking a politician you personally don't like in landing, you may want to hear the rest of Psalm 109.8, which has become a common bumper sticker among hardcore Trump fans. Quote, 
Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children be continually vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. Let the extortioner catch all that he hath, and let the stranger spoil his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy unto him, neither let there be to favor his fatherless children. So that's a nice, that's good. That's a oh, nice thing. Now, now I get the joke. Yeah, now it's funny. Yeah, you got now there. Now I get it's, it. Yeah, now I because get he's it. Wic- because Obama's wicked and deceitful. And that's who that psalm is meant to be after. Um, and like, I don't, I didn't care for Obama a whole bunch, but I feel like wanting his children to be fatherless, his wife a widow, everyone begging for the rest of the, like, that seems harsh, right? Like his kids to have to beg and suffer forever. That just I feel seems. Like, I feel like Purdue really missed like a marketing mark here by not making shirts that said Purdue one oh nine eight on it, like Stone Cold, and just started like throwing them at people and running out and drinking. I'm gonna guess non-alcoholic Heineken. Like I it just feels like a missed opportunity here. It, honestly, it was. And at the time, a spokeswoman for Purdue would later respond to the criticism, saying, "We are called to pray for our country." For our leaders and for our president. Purdue in no way wishes harm toward the president, and everyone in the room understood that. Because as we all remember, Walter, from the time, people were very nice about Obama among Republicans. There weren't any, like, effigies being hung up at the time, none of the hardcore resurgence of alt-right, you know, none of that. They got it. Yeah, and, and I, got I'm it. guessing, and I'm guessing the people at the Faith and Freedom Coalition, like, I assume they treat the Bible like they always treat the Bible, as they only use the passages they like, and they purposely had never read the rest of that passage. Yeah, that, I mean, honestly, I I think that would be better, right? I believe that would be better than the alternative, which is that they read the whole passage and were like, eh, fuck it. What's the worst that could happen? Um, which, I mean would not be unprecedented for members of Congress, unfortunately, but like, wouldn't be great. So yeah, but look, Purdue was always willing to stand by Trump's questionable comments as well. Standing out as one of the few senators who refused to waver in support when the Access Hollywood tape was released. You know, the one in which Trump said, I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab him by the pussy. You can do anything. I, I repeat that not because it's necessary, but because the horror of that should not be normalized after these four years. Uh, and don't worry, Purdue, uh, while everyone else had was facing a huge wave of controversy within Republican leadership, he never wavered. Uh, quote, he was one of the guys in 2016 who never threw him under the bus and was never ashamed when a lot of politicians were calculating how they would handle the Trump problem, a person close to White House told Business Insider. When you combine a similar interest in golf with a similar background, with the disdain for Washington, and then the loyalty, the person continued, the relationship pretty much explains itself. So he did it. Hooray! So in 2022, <laughs> after Purdue leaves the CEO of Trump Corp, how big, like, how big is the number going to be that he swindled away from Donald Trump? Are I we mean, talking like 60 million? Oh, God. I mean, it seems like the kind of thing where Purdue would get $5 million a year to run a TV show that just doesn't do very well. Because for outside of just believing the things that people want him to believe, 
he's not the most charismatic person you've ever talked to. He's 70 years old at this point. Like, I don't know that he has, like, the Alex Jones energy in him that the inevitable Trump News Network is going to be looking for, right? So, I... Man. Right, but you but you do need an old, like you do need like a geriatric white man to be on at like one thirty in the afternoon. Yeah, you know that seems right. That seems like a slot that everyone, which we've everyone's decided needs to be filled for a reason that I'm sure makes sense. Purdue was also present when Trump reportedly referred to a group of African countries as shithole nations one year later. Rather than rebuke the president, he just repeatedly denied that the president used those words, even after a tape of him saying that very same thing emerged. And when Trump made his executive order banning transgender people from serving in the military, Purdue's only response was, quote, I don't think this is the time to have a social agenda conversation, but I do think he is well within his rights to do it. He walked that back in an interview with the AJC months later, but never really publicly because he's a cow. Um, but that's cool. He's just, you know, unwavering. We all could use a friend like David so, Perdue, I think. So, when, like, by the time Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz actually got behind Donald Trump, like, it seems like Purdue was kind of his best friend. And then, like, you know, Donald, he got, like, a makeover. And all of a sudden, all, like, the popular kids were like, oh, this guy is going to be around for a while. I guess we have to be friends with him. Like, do you think Trump answered Purdue's calls on the first string or was he hanging out with, like, Ted and, like, uh, it's Dave calling. Like, I'm going to see if he'll go to voicemail. And would Purdue, like, call him right back? Or would he just send him a text that's like, I'm around. Let me know when you want to go golf. Like, how Honestly, do you think he feels? I mean, I think, I think David knew that he had to answer Trump's calls when Trump called. And I think Trump would call because he wanted to play golf a lot. And because... Um, Purdue just says yes to whatever he says. And I do think Trump likes that. Like, like if your goal is to be a lackey for a fascist, that's a good, you're, he's good at that. He has the right skill set for that, you know? Um, I think he answers the phone. Um, but he also, uh, recognized it by doing this, uh, got a lot of, um, got a lot of, uh, uh, recognition out of it. Uh, and once Trump was in office, he fell in lockstep with the president almost immediately. As Business Insider noted, Purdue argued for the elimination of the Environmental Protection Agency, called on the president to drop out of the Paris Agreement, and co-sponsored a bill allowing states to pass legislation that would require contractors to pledge to never boycott goods from Israel. Trump's Signature Tax Cuts and Jobs Act also received a vote from Purdue in 2017. What does Trump Purdue get out of the arrangement? Well, it starts with praise from the president himself, uh, which, as Newsmax CEO explained, uh, is typically about his great golfer skills, which in Trump speak is one of the highest accolades you can get. Um, Trump also appointed Purdue to a bunch of high-ranking committees, including the Armed Services Committee, the Banking Committee, Budget Committee, and Foreign Relations Committee. But the biggest reward, according to many GOP strategists, is the president's direct support. Georgia Republicans remain as steadfast in their support of Donald Trump as Senator Purdue, GOP strategist Brian Robinson said. He may not reflect the viewpoints of other senators in the caucus, but he does reflect the viewpoints of Georgia Republicans. He hasn't forgotten where he's from. I think the danger in Georgia Republican politics is not being with the president. Um, which is, that's, what do you call it when a political party says the best thing you can do is not argue with anything we have to say. What's that called? I forget. Refresh my memory, Walter. 
Is it a democracy? Because I don't think it's a that democracy. It doesn't sound like... It sounds like one of those silent discos to me. <laughs> Please don't imagine. You just kind of dance it. around everything and you just don't, like, say anything. You just dance around and pretend that you're agreeing with everything. God, it would be so much funnier if golf was just code for the two of them going to silent discos together. Like, that'd be a much funnier mental image and less harmful to the environment. All that land that we use for golf could be used for other things. Just saying. Anyway, um, <laughs> Purdue in a separate interview pointed out, uh, quote, My approach is to continue to encourage Trump to stay focused on his agenda because the message I get home in Georgia is, why are you guys in the Senate not supporting his agenda? You could always talk about what he said in this tweet or that tweet. When you back up and look at what's happening in this country, that's what people at home are really paying attention to. Um, and so, you know, cool. Does he say in that interview what the agenda is they're talking about? You know, Trump's agenda. The one that Trump has. Did, oh, you know, oh, Trump's agenda. The, yeah. the agenda, the Trump agenda. Yeah, the, the gotcha. agenda belonging to Trump. It's not, it's, I think you're over, I, I see where the confusion's coming in, Walter. The Trump agenda is Trump's agenda. So it's an agenda for President Donald Trump. It's Trump's agenda. Yeah, got it. Gotcha. Got okay, I'm on board now. I get Here where he's are. coming from. <laughs> I'm not well, from Georgia, but I agree with that now. It, it took, a, yeah, I understand. It's hard, uh, but it did, um, it does... Yeah. <laughs> there are bits of criticisms among former G Georgia GOP operatives that produce willingness to butter up the president and play personality-first politics. But those have melted away largely due to the financial support that has been given to, you guessed it, the Georgia Port Authority! Besides, Ooh. it's also worked incredibly well among Trump's diehard fans. As the AJC noted, quote, when the president huddled with senior GOP congressional leaders shortly after his inauguration to hash out his first-year agenda... He invited Purdue to sit in. A few months later, Trump gave a little-noticed legal immigration bill co-authored by Purdue a presidential boost when he hosted a press conference touting it in the White House's Roosevelt Room. The friendship has helped Purdue's popularity soar among the state's Republican-based voters, with whom he holds rock star status. <laughs> Nothing so hard rock as, you know, the establishment. Yay. I find all these references to like personality politics and like rock star just hilarious when I look at photos of this man. It's honestly, it is incredible. I, and I, I don't, I mean, given that the bar is Mitch McConnell, right? Like, yeah, he probably is more charismatic to listen to than Mitch McConnell. I will give him that. Um, but it is, yeah, I don't, I don't understand I would say good for him, but no, the opposite of that. It is bad. He is bad and should feel bad. So, Walter, I want to take a pause here because we're talking about Trump's agenda, and I'd like to play a lovely game with you called uh, Guess That Score. Here's the way it works. I've got a breakdown from both Politics That Work uh, and GovTrack that basically does a ranking of how David Perdue uh, performs according to some metrics of some either, uh, you know, advocacy groups that track certain types of things or just how he does on bills that uh, kind of favor one side or the other on a political spectrum. So you want to uh, play a game and see how well uh, he does on some of these things? 
if there is anything that I love during this COVID era where I can't go outside and do anything, it's playing really terrible trivia games. Uh, so I'm absolutely down for this. Can I just, can I preemptively give an answer? Uh, NRA, he's like S+. Yeah, you know what? I'm not even going to worry about the NRA. I'm only mentioning people that I think matter because it's because there's enough of these um how do you think uh the aclu what do you think they think of donald trump on a scale of zero to a hundred percent how do you think he he uh he did oh oh donald trump with the aclu on the aclu report card what do you think uh no uh david perdue david perdue, david okay. perdue david got perdue on the aclu, on the ACLU report, report card. card oh uh i'm gonna guess like 10 to 15 percent 14 percent good job Whoa, about, on the board. What about the League of Conservation Voters, uh, the environmentalists? Uh, again, 1 to 100, I'm going to say like an 8. He got a 14 this year, but his average lifetime only rose to 7% because he was 3% lifetime before it. So, okay. I, close, close. Close, a close I'll lifetime, you, I got that. I'll give you a half point. I'll give you a half. Okay. Um, what do you think from the Human Rights Campaign? Lucky number 14. Oh, this is a goose egg, my man. A whole zero oh. percent. Oh. Um, I, do I even need to tell you he got a zero percent from Planned Parenthood? I feel like I feel like that's kind of obvious. See, the fact that you said zero to 100, like I would have given him probably like a negative 70 or something. <laughs> that's that's fair. Well, I'm glad. How about this? Uh, wealthy versus the middle class. How... Often, what do you think is the divide? Uh, which does he support more and by how much? I am going to say he supports the wealthy like 82% of the time. He supports the wealthy 99.4% of the time. He couldn't, he couldn't get it under 90 just to give like a veneer that he cared about anybody yeah. except himself. No, he did no need. No, he's he's he made his point clear when he ran. Don't worry about that. I, I guess that makes sense. He is part of like what? the point six percent or whatever. What, what about civil rights, broad or narrow? Where are we going on that? Uh, he is very narrow on civil rights. Yep. Well, how much? Give me a number. Like two percent favoring civil rights. He chooses narrow, more narrow definitions of civil rights 77.8% of the time. Uh, okay. So bad. What about supporting big business or taxing the middle class? These are two separate ones, but they each got the same percent, so you get a two-in-one. So pro-big business, pro-taxing middle class. Yeah. What, what do you think? Like 99.8. 100%. No need to hedge. 100% of the time. Um, here are it was some the things. taxing middle class that like caught me off for a second because I'm sure he would have said in some like interview someplace he's like no I love the middle class they're the backbone of America they definitely aren't disappearing. Oh, we'll get to what he thinks of the working class later, my man. Don't you worry about <laughs> that. Um, some other just quick rattle offs: uh, military spending, ninety two point five percent of the time, uh, and uh, support on domestic surveillance gets seventy eight point six percent of the time. Um. The following are not so great. 40% for racial equality, 
27.3% for humanitarian aid, 26.7% on women's rights, 7% on funding education, 6% on environmental protection, and 0% on all of the following. Taxing the wealthy, robust safety net, labor rights and wages, consumer protection, regulating the financial sector, gun control, LGBTQ rights, humane immigration control, public health, or internet freedom. Two of those, by the way, he said he supported and then voted against them because of course he did. Ah, what a, what a motley crew of things. Um, Just going back to like the military spending thing, but he was totally for counting all of the military votes in Georgia that were like mail-in votes and provisional ballots, right? Like he was 100% to count all of them. We're going to get to what he thinks about the ballots of the election that just happened later, my friend. That's a spoiler. Um, but I do, I do want to just give a, a little bit of credit where it's due, because I have to, because that is, we are fair and balanced, TMCR. Uh, he only got a 26.3% on hawkish foreign policy. Um, he does seem to believe, like, war is bad for business, which is correct. Um, I wish he got there from a different place, but good. I'm glad he's not big fan of war. Um, he supports legalizing, taxing, and regulating marijuana. Uh, he supports independent panels for redistricting. Uh, and he favors tax credits for sustainable energy and is against drilling in Alaska. Though he also supported the Alaska, uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline. So, you know, meh. Um, my, he also said my God, to, Mr. No, Purdue, you're so progressive. <laughs> he also at one point uh, said that he wanted uh, businesses to publish salary ranges for each position so that men and women would both know that they were being paid equally for the same work. Uh, though, again, zero percent on labor rights and wages went actually up to a vote over the last six years. So take that with a grain of salt. That's just a thing he said he would support. And because his mom and dad were both school teachers, I, I believe he might mean that one slightly more than the other. He does seem to genuinely care about, like, the fact that the two of them were both valued for the work that they did back when, they, when he was a kid. Um, so he might actually believe that one. Everything else, this does not change any of the other stats I just named, but I'm about to say a whole bunch more mean things about him, so I just wanted to get that out of the way now. Is that fair? We good? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Please, like, I'm, I'm stunned now. He's like a progressive. I need to be reminded that he's evil. <laughs> oh, don't worry. Um, this loyalty to Trump even extends in matters within the party. Uh, from a 2019 Politico article, uh, Purdue was overwhelmingly defeated on an internal vote that would have made it easier to strip GOP senators of committee chairmanships, a proposal that he'd discussed in the past. These were specifically GOP committee chairs Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Susan Collins of Maine, and John McCain of Arizona, all of whom voted against the Obamacare reveal in 2017. And last year, Murkowski also opposed uh, Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh. Purdue would later claim that this was, quote, more about accountability and not aimed at a specific person. But he also didn't seem too fussed about alienating his supposed allies. I don't want this to sound arrogant, but I've got enough friends in Georgia, Purdue added. Um, <laughs> oh, do you <laughs> I'm pretty sure the devil went down to Georgia, so I think he's all set. Honestly, that sounds like something that, like, the penguin would say. Look, I've got enough friends in Gotham, Batman. I do not need your sympathies. Like, god damn, man. Like, come on. I, I um, said to a friend, I was recording episode, recording this podcast about cartoon villains, and I didn't expect him to actually be one. <laughs> it really... It really 
Uh, now, Purdue's support for Trump and GOP operatives in general has put him under public scrutiny in his home state on several occasions. In 2018, Purdue visited Georgia Tech for a Brian Kemp campaign event. At the time, Governor Kemp was under heavy fire for his handling of the gubernatorial race, a race he was competing in, after the Associated Press found more than 53,000 voter registration applications were found unprocessed in Kemp's office, the majority of which were from African-American or other minority voters. Uh, seems bad. Um, and he should have probably seen at least one question on the subject coming. When a Georgia Tech student tried to ask the senator a question, he couldn't even finish before Purdue snatched the phone out of his hands. Uh, the student, hey, so, uh, how can you endorse a candidate? No, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that, the senator can be heard saying into the cell phone recording. You stole my property, the student tells Purdue. You stole my property. All right, you wanted a picture, the senator replies. Give me back my phone, senator. You wanted a picture? I'm going to give it to you, ignoring the student's request. You wanted a picture? Give me back my phone, senator, he repeats. At which point the video starts again. Uh, and apparently the student is reunited with his phone. Uh, where he says, quote, That's U.S. Senator David Perdue, who just snatched my phone because he won't answer a question from one of his constituents. He's trying to leave. He's trying to leave because he won't answer why he's endorsing a candidate who's trying to purge people from voting based on their race. Now, to be fair, the Purdue campaign claims that the senator was just trying to take a selfie with the phone. Um, to be balanced, Walter, I would like to send you this video, and I would like you to tell me at what point you see a man trying to take a selfie, because I have watched this too many times for my own mental health, and there is not a single moment in which it seems like he is even trying to take a selfie. And I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. He's a 70-year-old man at this point. Like, maybe he struggles with selfies, but that... Does does that look like someone trying to take a selfie to you? That doesn't even look like someone who realizes it's being recorded and he wants to, like, delete it. <laughs> yeah. Like, he, why would you grab his phone? I, I, I can tell you two people who are not friends with Senator David Perdue... That student and Stacey Abrams. Oh my god, no, no. Stacey Abrams is not well-liked uh, among a lot of Republicans. Also, almost like there's been a massive smear campaign in which uh, they only pointed out the whole her not being a huge fan of how the election turned out and not the 53,000 missing votes that very easily could have swung that election. I don't know. Seems like the latter is a little bit more important to me, but like, eh. Um, yeah, but David, David's used to fudging numbers on things. Like, 53, 42 million. Like, I mean, what's the difference? It's close enough, isn't it? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, look, the Young Democratic Socialists of America at Georgia Tech didn't hold back with their criticism at the time. Purdue walked into Georgia Tech's backyard and students aren't allowed to ask him a single question, the group stated. Purdue would have been within his legal rights to simply walk away or decline the question, but instead he forcibly, suddenly, and violently took their phone without justification or provocation. Had the situation today been the other way around, and if the Georgia Tech student had snatched a sitting U.S. senator's phone, the student would likely be arrested on the spot. This is shocking. Uh, this behavior is shocking, appalling, and totally unbecoming of the supposedly hallowed house of a U.S. senator. And they're right, by the way. He totally would get arrested for that. Like, oh, 0.25 seconds. Absolutely. Um, the college student did sue Senator Purdue, by the way. I was able to find the filing. I was not able to find any evidence that the case had gone farther than that. So, unfortunately, I don't get to tell you a cool story about the Georgia Tech student 
who took David Perdue to court. But um, instead, you just get the one where he decided to steal a kid's phone and had no exit plan whatsoever. What was his plan? What was, like, you take the kid's phone and what? Well, so I know the kid's plan is now he doesn't have to pay for drinks at Georgia Tech. I mean, that's true. That's a big win. I was um, assaulted by a U.S. senator. Give me beer. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, just a few months later, Purdue was once again under fire for his support of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who was between his first and second credible accusation of sexual assault at the time. You know, like you do. Naturally, this had drawn the ire of women's rights advocates and sexual assault survivors, two of whom decided to confront the senator at the airport. After refusing to answer their questions about whether he would support an investigation into the allegations of Kavanaugh, one of the women tried to shake his hand, to which he responded, Don't touch me. You don't feel like you have, uh, you have to answer any questions to the people who have come uh, out about their sexual assaults, one of the women asked. Another said, You represent not just your state's choice, but every American in this country and every person that is vulnerable. This is a legacy and a moment in history that will not be forgotten. And instead of responding to the women... Purdue chose to hide in the airport restroom. <laughs> well, Purdue was clearly showing his understanding of consent. No, yeah, look, I look, I get it, Purdue. Sometimes you don't like to be touched, but that's kind of the point here in this very specific instance. And uh, but look, I just I have to say, um, as an as frustrating as this is, I do find a great sense of joy. In like that image, you know that you saw the photo, right? Of like Sean Spicer hiding behind the bushes from the press yeah. at one point. Yeah. Like this is that, except he's stuck in an airport bathroom. So he has like Which... airport terminal spell everywhere around him. That's so much funnier. We know <laughs> airport bathrooms are like the bastion of like this is where I would want to hide. Look, like hundred percent, I'd like to spend multiple hours here. Yeah, that seems fun. I'm. I hope he enjoyed every second of that. Uh, but of course, that wasn't the only questionable judge Purdue supported. In fact, Purdue rubber-stamped every single judicial nominee under McConnell and Trump's leadership, including at least five who were rated not qualified by the American Bar Association, and one who was so hostile to LGBTQ issues that even Lindsey Graham could only say, he's different than I would have chosen. Which... <laughs> <laughs> Way to go, Graham. You know, Way to go, Lindsay. You, you did you it. No, Dave, on one of his golf trips with the former president, Donald Trump, uh, would bring that up and be like, hey, remember that time Lindsey Graham didn't agree on that judge? Like, come on, dude. Why are you still hanging out oh, with him? Oh, Walter, don't worry. Graham voted for the guy. Because of course he did. Because words don't mean anything. But gotcha. he at least he at least was like, yeah, this seems fucked up. Cool. Thumbs up. Let's go. <laughs> it's just like, and, and look, I'm not even going to, this is not the point of the episode, but the guy that they're talking about, Menashe, is worth an entire Behind the Be behind the Bastards episode himself. Fuck that guy. We do not need ethno-nationalists on Supreme Courts for states. Would be good. But, you know, what are you going to do? Anyway, now's the time for the part that many of you lovely listeners have been waiting for. Purdue's insider trading scandal in Yay. April 2020. <laughs> we got there. Uh, in Yay. April 2020, the AJC reported that Senator David Purdue had bought stock in DuPont de, de uh, Nemours, a chemical company that produced personal protective equipment on January 24th, the same day in which the Senate received a classified briefing on the spread of the then new coronavirus. From that report, quote, Purdue's latest disclosure form listed 112 transactions, 82 of which were made on March 3rd. 
76 were stock, uh, stock purchases of as much as $1.8 million. The report also documented 34 stock sales worth as much as $825,000. The Journal Constitution reported that Purdue's portfolio activity from March onwards was three times as busy as it was in the two years before the coronavirus hit the United States. Uh, so that's neat. You know, I mean, look, when I get news that somewhere, you know, a disease is sweeping through our nation and is going to kill 3% of the population, I also think to myself, how can I make money from this? Right? I mean, I think he just wanted to put his money where his mouth is and thought that by putting, giving money to these companies by purchasing stock and by selling stock from other companies that he was then helping them with their logistics. Since he knows a lot about that, you know, running a trucking company that has his name, but he didn't run. Yeah. And burned horribly despite all of the corruption stuff he did. (laughs) He tried real hard. Uh, But here's the thing. Purdue's spokespeople have repeatedly claimed that since coming to the U S Senate in 2015, Purdue has had an outside advisor managing his personal finances. He's not involved in day-to-day operations and has complied with all federal and Senate's ethics requirements during his tenure. The bar for proving Purdue was involved is quite high uh, and no concrete evidence was ever found. However, the daily beast did note a few crucial details quote, Purdue does serve as a member of the Senate Banking Committee with jurisdiction over the financial industry, and he has eschewed measures taken by some other lawmakers to more concretely insulate himself from his financial positions. The senator has not placed his assets in a blind trust, meaning there is no formalized mechanism for ensuring he is not involved in such investment decisions, and that the public must simply take his word for it when he insists he is not. Sounds, what what could go wrong? Trust him. What has he done? See, the other, little, the other little bit of research I did here, Chase, was I actually found out who his financial consultants are. It's Nostradamus. So clearly, <laughs> he didn't have insider knowledge, more so as he saw a fortune teller to tell him when to buy and sell stock of these certain companies, and it just happened to coincide with this date that they received this classified intelligence. See, my favorite part of that story is that Nostradamus had the power to come back in time. And instead of telling us how we could beat coronavirus or like how to build a vaccine for it, he just shared stock information that can be used. Like, like what a Nostradamus Nostradamus noted historical capitalist. Yeah, noted capitalist Nostradamus. Uh, The Daily Beast continues, quote, Purdue's office told the Daily Beast that DPB's uh, DBP, those being uh, he and his wife's initials, uh, first data holdings actually came by the way of a managed fund publicly available to other investors. But his office wouldn't name that fund or any additional details about it. And according to Senate ethics rules, investment vehicles such as mutual funds, which are available to the public and not controlled by the lawmakers themselves, may be disclosed in lieu of each fund's individual holdings, but no such fund is mentioned in any of Purdue's annual financial disclosure filings. All of that would be less noteworthy, but for the timing and structure of Purdue's many transactions in first data stock. Some of those purchases and sales, including six-figure acquisitions of shares in the company, fell around key events, such as the finalization of a CFPB rule that softened regulatory language designed to crack down on prepaid debit cards, a key plank of First Data's business. And Purdue, or his financial advisor, repeatedly bought First Data stock, sold it off, 
then bought it again in transactions that coincided with both policy announcements affecting the company and a major merger that sent its stock price soaring. What are the odds? What a... What, like get I a, said, Nostradamus, Nostradamus strikes again. Nostradamus here. No. Uh, however, this did raise a bunch of eyebrows among those in the financial community who noted the frequency and timing of those trades was unusual for an account managed by a third-party broker, which typically favor more cautious long-term investments. As Duke University law professor James D. Cox put it, quote, if someone was really conscientious about the appearance of impropriety, they'd never trade individual stocks. But Purdue did. He traded large amounts, and they do raise questions about what he knew and when he hurt, knew it. Nobody should jump to conclusions, said former SEC prosecutor David Chase. There may be good reasons or rationale that persuasively and truthfully explain what is, again, at first blush, suspicious trading. The issue is whether there were communications between the individual and the advised, and these were directed trades. If it's not a blind trust, it can happen. No shit. You don't, you don't say. It's almost like we encourage those for some reason. You know? And then... He told the president how to do the same thing. <laughs> oh, my God. And here's the thing. That was not the only sketchy financial controversy that came up this year. Uh, according to a review of congressional financial disclosures and Security and Exchange Commission filings, David Perdue was granted a lucrative compensation package of more than $6 million earlier this year for his work with the Cardolytics brand. How, you might be asking, how is that possible? As The Intercept noted, Purdue hadn't been able to maintain his role as director of the board while being a sitting senator without creating illegal conflicts of interest. But luckily, Purdue had planned around that. Quote, the company had altered the terms of the compensation package so that Purdue could still benefit even after he was elected to the Senate. According to SEC filings, the firm extended the period he was able to exercise the options all the way out to 2020 and 2022. The company went public in 2018, with time still left on the clock for Purdue to exercise his options. The options were priced generously. Purdue was able to buy two chunks of his shares for $2.36 and $4.44, respectively. In February, the stock topped out above $98. So good, good for him. He did it. What a... That's, uh, that's a check of change right there. R rags to riches story, truly, right? I mean... Brilliant businessman. Oh, my God. Brian Foley, an executive compensation consultant at managing director of the firm Brian Foley & Company, said that allowing Purdue to leave with all of his options in 2014 was an understandable decision. Allowing him to stretch the time he had to exercise the options out to 2020 and 2022, however, was quite generous. Quote, to do it as someone is departing the board is very unusual, and I've only been doing this 45 years. It's very unusual. You don't say. <laughs> only 45 years? Like, come on, buddy. You got to get up to at least 50. Yeah, I mean, God. Yeah, man, it's just... It's just a whole bunch of people just standing around being like, this sure is weird. Too bad we can't do anything because of all the laws we passed preventing us to do things. Whoops. Um, but see, now we're going to get into the tough stuff, uh, Walter, because ultimately, if there was ever time to be a single-issue voter, the gross mishandling of the pandemic should be it. Purdue hasn't just been bad at tackling the issue. He's repeatedly underplayed its dangers and undermined those trying to properly address it. In May, Vox recovered leaked audio in which Purdue compared the risks of COVID-19 to car crashes. Quote, We get in an automobile, we drive on our public roads, and a certain number of us will die on our public roads every year. 
Purdue can be heard saying on a recording of a Zoom call with the Rome Floyd chapter last Thursday. Well, each of us in a representative democracy have the freedom to make that determination about the risk level for me as an individual. And therefore, we choose, or we, uh, we choose to go or we choose not to go. In a situation like this, as long as we have good information, we can make our own decisions. Ironically, on the day of the call, the state of Georgia announced its 1,557th confirmed coronavirus death in the 15 weeks since the state's first confirmed case, exceeding the 1,504 automobile deaths for the state in all of 2018, the most recent stat, uh, year for which those stats are available. That's not the direction I would have gone with a car analogy. I would have said something like, you can follow all the rules of the road, wear all your, you know, your seatbelt and all your safety stuff, and some asshole can still be the one who kills you. That would have been a better argument and one that would have encouraged things like wearing masks and uh, recognizing that you shouldn't go outside for anything other than necessary things until we slow the curve down. But that's not... That's not the world we live in yay um so, so so just for shits and giggles i googled david purdue mask to see if i could actually find a photo of him wearing masks and there's like six he does like i mean his whole thing isn't like don't wear a mask it's like the government shouldn't force you to wear a mask and we'll, we'll get to it later but like he's literally helping out as the state is suing the city of atlanta for trying to pass a mask mandate that's a thing that he thinks is bad and should be fought against. Um, so he's going to be leading a lawsuit against seatbelts, like, next February? I mean, honestly, given the car analogy, he might. Um, it wouldn't be that out of place. Um, Dr. Anthony Fauci, a prominent member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, noted, quote, I think that's a really false equivalency to compare traffic accidents with. I mean, that's totally way out. That's a really false equivalency when you have something that is new and emerging and you can't really predict the impact it's going to have. So at the time, this was a terrible thing to say. Um, and in the same call, Purdue also tried to downplay COVID's deadliness, comparing it to a bad flu season. Quote, as the number of active cases decline, Let's all recognize that this COVID-19 crisis is nowhere near what was being forecast back in March, he told business leaders. So we're about 80,000 deaths in the United States, and we don't want to lose anybody. But we've had ordinary flu seasons with more deaths than we're seeing right now in this one. So we're now trying to get a balance between the human cost of the disease and the human cost of having an economy like our shutdown. As of November 12th, the day we're recording this podcast, we have once again hit a new daily high with over 144,000 confirmed cases. Over 65,000 people are currently hospitalized with COVID, and our seven-day average death total is over 1,000. I don't have a joke here. I just really need to highlight the immense gap between what Purdue has repeatedly told citizens and business leaders over the past calendar year and the reality of the situation, which you almost certainly know even as he was saying these things, you know, because he's a liar. Just two other fun facts. We also have two states that have had over a million confirmed cases each. So, yeah, there's no joke here. It's just sad. Yeah, this was May. It's got calming down in May, huh? Yeah, man. It's November. Mm. Now. We got it, guys. You, you might be wondering, Walter, how Purdue has tried to support working class people during this pandemic, given the inevitable toll on the economy. And as you wait, can wait, guess from wait. the voting record. I wait. remember from the quiz. He taxes uh -huh. middle-class people 100% of the time. Yeah, so the answer was as little as humanly possible. And indeed, even the bare minimum was seen as too much for Purdue. As he told Northwest Georgia News in a May interview, 
quote, I personally oppose the $1,200 stimulus package, but that's a controversial opinion too. I feel like the number one objective we had was to keep the relationship between the employer and the employee. The other side, as part of the negotiation, said, no, we need a stimulus package to help these people keep consuming, etc., etc. We know from 08 and 09 crisis that that was less than effective. Now, there are a lot of people who can use that. They've lost their job, their unemployment, etc., etc. But what we're trying to do now is a lot of people that have gotten these loans, these small business loans, are now calling their people back to work. And that's an encouraging sign. I guess 140,000 people caught COVID yesterday. Yeah, 100, yep. 1,000 deaths per day this week. Um, but we got to get back to work. Yeah. Got to get but, back to work. But look, man, Purdue's focus for COVID aid is always focused on business owners at the expense of the working class, including dropping the $600 additional unemployment premium that had helped laid off workers uh, as early as July. In an interview with PBS, Purdue defended the decision saying, quote, in my state, the number one thing that's holding us back from opening up a lot of small businesses further is uh, than they are is the fact that they're having trouble getting people to come back to work because of this premium. I believe that going forward, we have got to reopen the economy, follow the protocols. And in my state particularly, that doesn't include a premium that we have just done to help in the worst time. We are moving past that now. Yeah. Ah, oh, God. It's just, it's so... I, I don't, do I even have to like point out that like people not going to work was good because we needed to reduce spread and that the whole the government's whole job was to keep people from going in so we could reduce the spread. Like he's complaining because the policy worked. I, I'm so tired, Walter. <laughs> I'm so tired. I mean, that's like, that's what you use. It's a false equivalency. You say, hey, this thing, uh, you know, we aren't catching it very badly here because everything is closed. That means everything is safe, right? Yeah. So 8,600 people dead in Georgia. Yep. Uh, Don't worry. We're still going. It wasn't just businesses that Purdue wanted to open back up. As he was fighting back against a mask mandate instituted by Atlanta Mayor Keisha Bottoms in June, Purdue announced his new legislation aimed at helping schools reopen safely. Purdue's oh. bill would provide funding school for schools that they could use to provide uh, personal protective equipment, PPE, and clean and disinfect school buildings. It also make nurses and other healthcare workers available to help with symptom checks and help schools develop procedures for notifying parents of COVID cases. Now, given his parents' history as educators and Purdue's focus on it as part of this platform, I am willing to believe that this bill may have been well-intentioned, but there was a problem. President Donald Trump was not going to wait for all of those efforts to be properly sorted. He wanted to open now, and therefore, so did Senator Perdue. Gwinnett County Public Schools, Georgia's largest school district, announced their intention to open the school year with 100% digital instruction, as did Atlanta Public Schools. However, as the Daily Tribune noted at the time, Georgia's public college and university presidents were fully on board with plans to open campuses to in-person instruction during the upcoming fall semester. And according to Georgia's school-age 2020 COVID report, that didn't go very well. Uh, when these young adults went back to school in late August, the rate of COVID cases per 100,000 for uh, 18 to 23-year-olds rose from under 250 cases to over 500 from August 17th to 31st. 
Who could have seen that one? Just not David uh, Perdue. Not not David Perdue. And <laughs> you're not. Oh God, yeah. Well, hmm. You, you might be wondering, Walter, what that meant for younger children who attended public schools in person at some point over the past calendar year. And I'd love to tell you, but honestly. We don't know. As the AGC reported in September, quote, Georgia health officials have decided to withhold information about coronavirus infections at each school, saying the public has no legal right to information about outbreaks that the state is investigating. That, I... Does that include, like, parents? I... Honestly... Because I'm not a parent or a young school-aged child myself, but I feel like if I was in school or had children in school, I would want to know if my school was under investigation for a possible outbreak. You would like, think that's so. That's just me, but like, you know. Yeah, you would You would think, it, you know, the decision not to reveal the number of COVID cases uh, and uh, related quarantines and clusters meant the only recourse for parents and teachers was trying to gauge the risk uh, is the willingness of their local school system to publicize its own data. Some school districts in Georgia weren't revealing what was going on in their old schools, that they disclosed anything. It was often district-wide numbers that make it difficult to discern the risk within each individual school. And according to the Georgia's uh, Department of Public Health, it chose not to make the, public, uh, the data public out of concerns about possible non-cooperation of schools in reporting data, and decided to maintain the confidentiality of the weekly COVID reports. Uh, indeed, of Georgia's 2,300 public schools, about 700 of them refused to submit data through the state's new portal, despite the program theoretically being mandatory. As a result, every stat on the spread among children below the age of 18 has to be taken with a huge pile of salt. But there's one thing we know for sure. Few states are handling COVID as bad as Georgia is right now. The case numbers are low due to a lack of testing overall across the state, but they've averaged one death per 100,000 people over the past seven days, which is third worst in the nation behind only the Dakotas. Uh, if you want to go overall, uh, they're 12th with 83 deaths per 100,000 people. Um, though it's worth noting, right, that outside of Atlanta, Georgia is a much more spread out state than most of the other ones that are above it. Um, is now a bad time to tell you that the Georgia official COVID website that I just linked you to has its main subheader, good news? I... <laughs> I this issue could news across all divisions. I look. I know. I, I don't think that Purdue has anything to do. I honestly don't know. Like it's a Georgia thing, and he's a senator, so probably something. But like, fuck off. What are you? What? The number one for Philip. It's so. It's so. <laughs> it is. They're listing tourism numbers on here from 2019 as a success. <laughs> oh boy yeah, and then we get into the business guidelines that's next we have to start with the good news we've got to keep it positive here at the COVID resource center we like to keep it light keep it fun I'm keep it in. fresh um, <laughs> I'm in what? I'm in agony? I yeah I'm wow, man. stuck inside I, I think I, Walter I told you during the week that prepping for this podcast was just 
drowning in a sea of fact-checking and internal screaming, and I think you now understand why. I think we have finally gotten to the part that has made this all make sense. I gotta um, say, I've seen a couple different states ones of these, and I don't think I've seen a single state promote their tourism division in, like, the first, like, it's the above first, the headline. It's the first section. <laughs> above the fold. They didn't even try. Oh, okay. Well, um, look, I would love to end there, but unfortunately, COVID hasn't been the only thing on Purdue's mind this year, even if it arguably should be. He's had an election to run against Democrat John Ossoff, and, but yeah, as you know. Those election efforts have involved a massive and brutal social media campaign. And while I'm not going to get into every piece of misinformation and mudslinging that's been thrown out there, there is one ad that deserves some extra attention. From the LA Times, quote, Republican Senator David Perdue of Georgia has taken down a digital campaign ad featuring a manipulated picture of his Democratic opponent, John Ossoff, who is Jewish, with an enlarged nose. Before being removed, the Facebook ad showed grainy pictures of Ossoff and Senator Charles Schumer of New York, who is also Jewish, above a banner reading, Democrats are trying to buy Georgia. Help David Perdue fight back. Which, I mean... Very literal interpretation of the Jews are buying the world conspiracy for a 2020 politician. So this is why I said at the beginning, like he does, he does commit. He just commits to anti-Semitism. So that's fun. So, so I can't ignore the anti-Semitism here, but uh-huh. doesn't Dave Purdue kind of have success selling things? Like maybe he would want. To sell Georgia and make like again like what sixty million off of it? Well, he's that's the thing. He's like self-funding most of his campaign. He's literally trying to buy Georgia with his personal finances, but he brings up the picture of two Jewish people and enlarges their nose. Um, oh Ooh. God! A spokeswoman for Purdue said in a statement uh, that the image had been removed from Facebook, calling it an unintentional error by an outside vendor, though never naming who that vendor was. Osaf requested an unqualified apology. Uh, for the use of the oldest, most obvious, least original anti-Semitic trope in history for the Jewish community, but that, of course, never emerged. Um, is there, sp- is there like a parlor version of Fiverr? Uh, like, is that where you get this kind of stuff done? God, uh, there's definitely. I mean, the grifters have to have found something. I'm trying to think of like where, like Milo Yiannopoulos and like those assholes go. Because they can't go on Patreon, they've been banned from there, and so Couldn't do there's Patreon. Couldn't there's do definitely fire. like a Patreon for grifters. I just don't know what that is. Uh, like, comment, subscribe if you know what that is. This is something you can like or just tell me. I would be curious, genuinely, um, or not. Maybe it'll just add to existential dread, and I'll regret it. Tell me anyway. Uh, <laughs> But Ossoff's biggest successes have come when pointing out Purdue's failures during the pandemic. As he said in an October debate, quote, Perhaps Senator Purdue would have been able to respond properly for, to the COVID-19 pandemic if you hadn't been fending off multiple federal investigations for insider trading. It's that you're attacking the health of the people that you represent. You did say COVID-19 was no deadlier than the flu. You did say there would be no significant uptick in cases. All the while, you were looking after your own assets and your own portfolio, and you did vote to end protections for pre-existing conditions. Mike drop. Someone needed the only to say time it. I've seen David Perdue express emotion. 
It's literally, it's the one time. And it was really a good one because it was so good that Purdue immediately canceled the final senatorial debate that they had and decided to go speak at a Trump rally instead, at which he accused Osav of lying to the American people and won an extended rant in which he lied about defending protections for Georgians for pre-existing conditions. In reality, he voted four times against those protections because of course he did. Um... But ultimately, the Senate election between Osaf and Purdue was too close to call. Neither candidate hit 50%, so we're heading to a runoff in January. That's the premise for this whole show. Uh, just like we are with Kelly Loeffler versus Reverend Raphael Warnock. And given Purdue's place as one of Trump's al top allies, no one should be surprised when he and Loeffler released the following statement denying the results of the election. Have you seen this one, Walter? I have. Uh, oh, I... Boy. Oh, my Lord. My well, initial thought was then, like, so does that mean you guys shouldn't be going to a runoff then? Well, no. See, the votes count if they win. Well, here, hold on. Let me just read the thing for people who haven't. Quote, the management of Georgia elections has become an embarrassment for our state. I have to pronounce it this way because this is how I imagine them writing it. Georgians are outraged and rightfully so. We have been clear from the beginning. Every legal vote should be counted and any illegal vote must not. And there must be transparency and uniformity in the counting process. This isn't hard. This isn't partisan. This is American. And we believe when there are failures, they need to be called out, even when it's your own party. While the blame certainly lies elsewhere as well, the buck ultimately stops with the Secretary of State. The mismanagement and lack of transparency is unacceptable. Honest elections are paramount to the foundation of democracy, and the Secretary of State has failed to deliver honest and transparent elections. He has failed the state of Georgia and its people and should step down immediately. Ah, this I'm just imagining like the Star Wars like Palpatine leading the Senate. That would have absolutely gotten cheers. See, it's uh, funny because when I read that and I got to that they have failed, I immediately thought of uh, the CW's Arrow. <laughs> and Stephen Amell just being like you have failed this city. And was just like, but Stephen Amell would never like He'd be on the other side. <laughs> like, never, yeah. The arrow would never be on that side. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, well, you know, Georgian Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who is a Republican, by the way, did not mince words with his response. Quote, Earlier today, Senators Loeffler and Purdue called for my resignation. Let me start by saying that is not going to happen. The voters of Georgia hired me, and the voters will be the ones to fire me. Was there illegal voting? I'm sure there was. My office is investigating all of it. Does it rise to the numbers or margin necessary to change the outcome to where President Trump is given Georgia's electoral votes? That is unlikely. Yeah, he's correct. That's man. It's it's weird that like the bar is so low that just like a Republican operative telling the truth is like, yeah, we did it. But like, yeah, we did it. I wonder if they made any statements about the rampant voting issues back in 2018. Uh, oh, no, wait, they won that election, so why would they care about that? Yeah, well, and that's, I mean, the AJC actually wrote a thing about it. And we could go into the fact that Georgia's been one of the most transparent states when it comes to reporting election results, as 538's Nate Silver pointed out. Or we could point out that there have been more Trump aides who have tested positive for COVID since the election than there have been documented cases of voter fraud, as writer Ari Berman noted, about 10 minutes before we started this podcast, which is very funny. But I think the Which AJC one made you happiest? Yeah, ah, man. Yeah, I mean, they're both... But yeah, this, the AJC, I think, put it best. Uh, quote, 
Specific actionable allegations based even somewhat loosely in facts can be assessed and investigation, investigated, which is appropriate. Hyperbole and sly accusations cannot. Reckless barely begins to touch on what Purdue and Loeffler have done without presenting reasons they have assaulted Georgia's election system. This is dangerous behavior in this tense moment, both for our state and for the nation that is watching this risky sideshow. Georgia is an influential state. Our political importance is likewise gaining prominence, especially as Republicans and Democrats fight hard for dominance here. Done ethically, a robust pursuit of votes can help citizens make choices. The latest inappropriate lobbing of thin accusations at election officials is nowhere near that. Purdue, Loeffler, and all others should know that. We believe fair-minded Georgians already do. Hell yeah. That's, that's, a, a, that's a good one from the HAC. Um, that's solid. That's definitely solid. Yeah, I, you know, I think, you know, they do make a lot of points in the article I'm referencing there about how previous elections certainly, like required uh, a little bit more scrutiny, but nothing to the extent that what Loeffler and Purdue are implying here. Um, those things were not good in any way, shape, or form, but it is very different than saying people are lying about the literal ballots that have been cast. Um, and yeah, I do feel like that's... I'm, I'm glad that people are marking that as the departure that it is, because I, I do feel like believing what the ballots say is like kind of step one of the whole democracy thing. Uh, and I don't like when we don't do that. I think that's bad actually. It just, it like, it goes to show some of the like ridiculousness that they come up with. Cause I like the jokes about like, if we were, if we were actually, you know, if the Democrats were actually cheating in the election, do you think Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell would have won? Like again yeah. here, like if you if the Democrats were really cheating in the presidential election, don't you think they would have cheated to not get either of you into a runoff? Yeah, why did we lose Congress? But when like what what is this? Yeah. How, how are they powerful enough to cheat but too stupid to act, to cheat well? It's amazing. Well, a bit, but I mean, of course, that's not the point, right? It, like it's it's the double speak that all fascists do, yes. in which the opponent is is strong and weak at the same time. And all that matters is that you believe that what you're saying is true, even if it's not. Um, it's a thing that people do and are good at, which is bad. But, you know... <sighs> and look, uh, to close this out, I'm admittedly not the biggest fan of Ossoff. His family have been DNC operatives for a long time. His media company has quietly disclosed ties to a pro-CCP Hong Kong media company and the guy struggles to get consistent messaging across it's like a sharp tone in one moment on issues like defunding the police but then immediately drops support when questioned in favor of more moderate policies he's not running on any of the traditional progressive things you're thinking of uh, m4a green new deal uh even legalizing marijuana i don't believe made it onto his final ballot um, and that's because he's a politician through and through, one that focus tests so hard that he can come off as disingenuous. And while I like the combative energy he brought to this election, it's undoubtedly true that making the Purdue election a referendum on Trump has made it harder to reach longtime Republicans, even as he rebukes the more progressive wing of his own party. But when it comes to the two's history, this one's not particularly close. David Perdue's corruption as a businessman and as a politician, his overwhelming loyalty to Trump at the cost of his constituents, and his handling of the COVID crisis from start to finish make him a monster that I hope Georgians will rebuke at the polls on January 5th, 2021. 
Osov can be bullied into doing the right thing. Purdue never will. And that's what I got. What do you what do you think? We did it. We made it to the end. How are you feeling? I think David Purdue sounds like an awful human being. He's so bad. I swear to God, I spent I lived in this for like a week, and I hope you can tell. I please let me know genuinely if you guys enjoyed this or not. Um I will do one more of these because there are two Georgia runoffs. Um, oh boy but yeah man and here's the crazy thing I, here's a fun fact what do you think Loeffler's Trump score is just take a guess on a scale of 1 to 100 1 to 100 and this is the percentage of times in which her position and Trump's position were the same when it came to voting 101% 100% you got it I mean it's like she would go 101 if she yeah. could she for, is going for his- Bad as Purdue is, he didn't endorse someone who is, like, tangentially associated with QAnon. That's true. He didn't. He's not associated with QAnon. He's just a bad person who should feel bad. And not be a senator would be my preference. Um, But, hey, uh, if you live in Georgia, I'm going to include uh all of the links in the description both for um all the sources i used for this uh and also steps on how to register to vote if you live there uh it'd be real cool if you did and if i didn't sell you on osov because i admittedly didn't try very hard to sell you on osov other than that he's not david purdue just don't don't vote for purdue that's fine i i think it would just be neat for it to not be just not another Purdue mucking up things in Washington would be nice. I think we're good on the Purdue cousins. But we'll see. Walter, where can the nice people at home find you? Uh, you guys can find me screaming into the void at C80s underscore LOL. You can find me screaming into the void at at Chase Wassenaar. Uh, and you should follow uh, the Behind the Bastards podcast at Bastards Pod. Uh, this whole thing is an homage to them uh, as far as the formatting went. And I took uh, a deep inspiration from them and their work. Uh, so if you liked this, you'll love their uh, better version of this. But I sure did. I sure did try. So I hope you guys all enjoy is enjoyed the word. Walter. He's not kidding when he said he spent like a week researching this and has like ridiculous numbers of sources. Like he kept texting me like there's more stuff. I'm and, oh. so tired. <laughs> and so I think this is I think that's the note. Um until and next, next time. time we get to talk about Kelly Loeffler. Yeah, can't wait for that. Woo! Goodbye, internet. <laughs>